Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And this is episode 10 of the North Meet South web podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today we have with us Adam Wathen, who is probably best known in the Laravel community right now for his work with Laravel Collections and his book Refactoring to Collections. Uh, Adam is also the host of Full Stack Radio, which if you haven't listened to, you should definitely give a listen. Uh, One of my favorite podcasts for sure. Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show uh, with us today, man. Really happy to have you here. No problem. I'm excited. Um, so for anybody who might not be familiar with kind of where you're coming from and what you're up to these days, would you mind just giving us a quick intro? Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Adam Wathen. I'm a PHP developer for the most part. Um, I do a lot of work with Laravel. Uh, these days I work uh, kind of for myself on my own training products and uh, stuff like that. So. Well, Adam, we wanted to have you on the show today to kind of pick your brain about a few things and see what you've been up to the last few months. Uh, I know you've had some big changes recently, even in employment and in your future plans. But uh, kind of before we get into that, something else Michael and I were talking about before the show is that uh, we'd love to hear your story of kind of how you got into programming and, and what that path looked like for you. Like, did you go to university? Do you actually have a CS degree or, or what sort of jobs uh, have you had that kind of led you into where you are now? Sure. So, um I think probably I've I have a couple like first memories of programming and I can never really remember which came first. But uh, one of them was I remember being in like elementary school in probably grade five, grade five or six, where uh, we had a bunch of Mac computers in our classroom and some other kids in my class were always like trying to make games in HyperCard. I don't know if anyone ever used HyperCard before. No, I've never used that. No. So it was like this this mac application that had a scripting language called i think it was called hyper talk and you could do stuff like listen for keyboard presses and mouse clicks and stuff and move things around on the screen that you drew so we would make games and stuff with that which was one of my first memories as far as like getting into programming the other thing was when i was a kid i was like obsessed with pro wrestling it was like the only thing i ever thought about (laughs) all the time and um i used to download these like wrestling simulators where you could like create characters and it would do like these text simulation wrestling matches and stuff and i was always trying out different ones and then one day i like came across this like tutorial on like making your own wrestling simulator with q basic Oh yeah. So I tried to make my <laughs> yeah. So I tried to make my own wrestling simulator, uh, which didn't really go very far because I didn't know anything about like dynamically generating content or anything. So it was like, or randomly choosing between different outcomes. So I couldn't figure out how to get it to actually do anything useful. It was just kind of do this, then this, then this, <laughs> right? Um, but then I, I I thought that was really fun and started looking around for like other QBasic tutorials and learning how to do things like people used to make these like tile based RPGs and stuff in QBasic all the time, like Final Fantasy three looking RPGs. So there was all these tutorials out there for like making your own like tiling engines and cool stuff like that. So I remember doing a lot of that and then uh, getting into web development probably when I was like. I call it web development, you know, like making HTML web pages right, and stuff right. when I was maybe like 11 years old. Um, and yeah, I remember I picked up this book at this, uh, we, we went on this like trip to a university when I was in elementary school and we stayed overnight and I went to the bookstore there and picked up Sam's Learn HTML4 in 24 hours. That was like my first programming book that I purchased. <laughs> 
Um, so I used to make websites and stuff all the time when I was like in high school, um, you know, and I started taking the computer programming courses that were offered in high school. And then as soon as I finished high school, I went off to university to study computer science, uh, but I only did a year of it. Um, I decided I didn't want to keep doing it. I was just distracted with other things in life. I was playing in bands and kind of obsessed with that stuff. So I uh, left school and just worked for a while and did some other stuff. And then um, eventually I found myself trying to run a recording studio for a living, uh, recording bands and stuff using this software called Reaper to do everything. And I kept finding like features that were missing that I wanted it to have. And a couple of the people that were like real power users turned me on to the fact that it had like a scripting language built into it. So I started learning how to write my own features and stuff for the audio editing software I was using. Um, And then someone else showed me how to write my own extensions for it in C++. And I started like having more fun you know, improving the user experience of the software by adding these features than I was actually recording bands or anything. Hmm, And it made me remember how much I loved programming. So I went back to college after that um, to study uh, software engineering and did that for, it's like a three-year program, but I did it for two years. And then there's like a, like a co-op job placement portion of it. Mm -hmm. So I went out for the job placement and then never went back after that. (laughs) I've just been working as a professional uh, you know, software developer ever since. Was that so. the first job you got picked up at? Like the job that you interned at, they, they ended up hiring you then? Yeah. What was the name of that company? Uh, vehicle actually. Oh yeah. Vehicle. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And you live right by them currently, right? Did, have you always, is that just convenient that that was how it worked out or did you guys, did you move there to be close to vehicle? No. Um, when I, when I joined them, they were actually, uh, called Chrome media. They had a different name and they had just like started transitioning into building more web application stuff from doing more traditional like marketing websites and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Like kind of the path that a lot of web agencies seem to take. Um, so they had a co-op job posting up, you know, with the school and I saw it and it was like all PHP application development and stuff. And I thought, well, this sounds cool. This is like exactly what, you know, I would like to do. And uh, so I applied for that and got it and, you know, worked there. And, uh, yeah, never left. So that's cool. That's really cool. It's funny, like how familiar and how, um, I guess common, a lot of the experiences of programmers that are our age, uh, are right. Like, uh, it's funny. I remember we, we talked to David Hemphill a couple episodes ago and he talked about how kind of how he got into programming was the same idea of like, you know, it was a Q basic sort of like there's these monkeys that throw bananas at each other. Right. And he had to like yeah. hack it to get like infinite lives. Right. And, uh, yeah, I remember um, even hacking on ROMs, like trying to get cheats and stuff back in the day. And <laughs> it's funny, like how many people kind of reference that as like their initiation into programming, just, you know, little changes in code to try and get stuff to work how you wanted. Yeah. Did either of you guys ever have a Game Shark? Oh, yeah. PlayStation, oh, for sure. Where yeah. you'd have to like edit all the hex codes and stuff to try and like get yeah. infinite lives and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So it is pretty, it is just, just interesting how a lot of people, you know, around that age of like, you know between eight and 12, you know, back in the day, we got introduced to programming just by way of necessity to hack our games and stuff like that. So it's, it's funny. Yeah. It's almost like, um, we just happen to like live in an era where, um, computer programming is like the best tool you can use to just solve your own problems. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And you just kind of learn it to solve your own problems. 
Um, not necessarily because you're super passionate about, you know, how computers work or uh, computer science stuff. It's just like, you know, playing with Lego or something, you know what I mean? It's just something yeah. you can use to build things. And that just happens to be what we have available to us. So. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Like my first necessity for learning HTML was I was posting on like a message board and I had to be able to add a signature image. You know, I wanted to add like a signature to the bottom of all my forum posts. And it was like, you had to use HTML to do it. And I had no idea, you know? So I learned about the image tag, like went on, I think it was W3 schools, right? They had like this HT, learn HTML thing. And then I had to use GeoCities to host my image. So then it was like, I was stuck with GeoCities for the next three years. And yeah, it was just, it was like a good time. It was like the golden era of web development for, you know, for kids, I guess. It was really, really low barrier to entry. And I feel like there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, pretty complex now. So it's a little bit more difficult to kind of get into. But back then it was literally all you had to know was HTML and CSS. And that was it. And not even CSS for a while. No. Yeah. Just HTML. So like the font tag and all yeah. the cool stuff. Right, right. Yeah. The blink tag, the marquee <laughs> yeah. tag. Uh, those are the good times. Good times. Now we just use utility classes to simulate that stuff instead. Yeah, dude, that's <laughs> something else I've been working with too. And I, I'm just, I'm just kind of getting into that. I know that again. When we had David on, we talked about Beard CSS and that's kind of a utility class CSS uh, framework. And so, I'm still kind of looking for the perfect project to use that on. I've, I've pulled it into one of my projects just because I was like, this is definitely going to be easier if I can just slap a couple utility classes on this thing and, and style it how I want. Um, so I've kind of halfway used it. I haven't used it exclusively yet, but planning to do that in the near future here. Cool. Yeah. So I know that, um, you know, most recently you were working at Titan, which is a really awesome Laravel shop, uh, based out of Chicago, Matt Stauffer, who a lot of, you know, Laravel devs are familiar with as well. Um, but at Laracon this year, you were up on stage and you had said like, when I was at Titan, I did this. And I was like, wait a second, did he just say when I was at Titan? Like he's not at Titan. And so I asked you later in the conference and it was, you were like, yeah, no, I'm kind of doing my own thing. So do you want to talk a little bit about like some of the decision-making process that went into leaving Titan and kind of venturing out on your own and what kind of pushed you that direction? Yeah, sure. So um, I was working at Titan for about a year and a half. Um, and before that, I worked at, you know, two other web agencies, always working on client work and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, while I was working at Titan, I started working on that uh, refactoring to collections book, which kind of started as a really small idea to just... You know, I had a bunch of people ask me questions and stuff on Twitter all the time, like, hey, how would you do this with collections? I sort of like accidentally developed like a reputation for being an expert with that stuff because I would always tweet like little screenshots of like neat things I was able to do or whatever, things I was getting excited about. So people were asking me a bunch of questions about it. And I thought, man, it would be kind of cool to like take uh, some of my favorite like tips and tricks and throw it into like a 40 page like PDF or something, right? Um, so I started working on that just kind of in the evenings and weekends and it turned into like a 160 page book with like four hours of screencasts yeah. and all this other stuff and like this real big project. And I put it out and it was, uh, it was really, really successful. So, um, right after I put it out, me and my wife went on our honeymoon and, uh, you know, just did a lot of thinking over that time. Like, and, uh, I've always kind of wanted to run my own business and kind of work on my own projects and you know, figure out ways to make my own money. And I never really had like a good opportunity to do that before. But the success of the book had kind of given me this opportunity that I felt like if I didn't do it, then uh, any money I made from the book would have just like slowly vanished over time. Um, and, you know, I would have just been doing the same thing. And I just didn't know if I was going to get an opportunity to 
to work on my own stuff full time, you know, anytime in the near future. So I thought it would be fun to try and take that chance and just like do it full time. And, you know, I'd had this idea for this testing course that I'm working on now, which actually I wanted to do before the collections book idea came up. So I thought, well, you know, if that book did well enough to be able to like, you know, sustain us as a family, then um, maybe there's other stuff I can work on that does that uh, and work, you know, accomplish the same thing. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to kind of focus on some of that stuff and and see what I could do with it. And uh, we'll see how it goes. You know, maybe I'll end up having a job again sometime down the road. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for now, it seems like a a good chance to kind of take a, a run at it and see if it ends up being you know a good fit for me so yeah absolutely um i know for me like the scary thing is always like i i feel like i'm terrible at coming up with ideas uh for things uh like matt stauffer is like mr idea minute right um that dude's never at a lack for ideas but like for myself i'm always thinking like okay um I got to come up with something that I can kind of work on on the side and just kind of hack on. And it always takes me forever to come up with an idea and they're always crap. So, uh, I'm, a, I admire your ability to kind of, you know, come up with the idea to do the collections book and now the testing book and, and, uh, looking forward to that coming out too. And actually, you know, like I said, we we're going to, we're going to have some questions about that a little bit later on, but, um, so now that, you know, you're kind of not a Titan anymore. I know you made jigsaw and mail thief, uh, which jigsaw is kind of like a static, uh, site generator built in Laravel and Mail Thief is a package that you developed for um, basically doing mail testing in, in Laravel using the mail facade. What's kind of like the path look like for those as kind of you move, you know, you move on to doing your own stuff. Are you going to be maintaining those anymore? Or are those kind of under the Titan namespace now? And what's what's that kind of going to look like? Yeah, so um, Titan is maintaining both of those projects and kind of doing like all future development on them. I'm still, um, you know, in the loop and kind of involved in stuff. And, um, you know, any major changes are still running them by me because I kind of put the the whole thing together and they're being, uh, good in that aspect of, you know, not totally cutting me off from, um, the projects that I (laughs) originally created. So, you know, I still have as much freedom to contribute to those as, as time allows and stuff like that. Um, but they are kind of taking on the overall, uh, maintenance burden, which, uh, is kind of, it's kind of the ultimate uh, scenario for me really because it's it's always really hard when you have an open source project just under your own name sitting up on github because the second that you lose interest in it you can't really like get away from it because it's mm-hmm. always going to be adam wathen slash this you know what i mean yeah, even if yeah. you decide to pass it on to to someone else to maintain so having it under the titan co namespace is, is great because you know they have a whole team of people there and uh whenever anyone there has downtime or is looking for something to work on you know it's a great thing for them to work on and i can contribute to it just like any other open source project mm-hmm. uh, that i would contribute to except uh i'm given a little bit more i guess uh i don't have to worry about my pull requests not being merged <laughs> right 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 <laughs> you know you know what i mean yeah so yeah i know like uh, they're actually working on a quite a big um some new features for jigsaw which is uh, people have been asking for like uh you know like blogging functionality like collection sort of support so i actually spent like a week and a half cranking out like um that functionality which involved like basically a rewrite of the whole thing oh my gosh. It's still like very hard to implement in a sane way for a lot of nitpicky reasons that are probably not worth getting into but uh, i kind of got that in place and they've been kind of polishing that up to hopefully put out uh soon which will be pretty cool so you can use like jigsaw for a full blog and stuff like that uh and then mail thief i um i know they just tagged a 5.3 compatible version of that too so, yeah, I haven't done anything on Mail Thief in a, a little while. 
I, it's, it's again, one of those situations where it's like, I'm grateful I was able to get it to the point where it did everything I needed it to. And I'm, I'm not burdened with having to make it do everything everyone else wants it to do. Yeah, I know. As soon so. as 5.3 came out, uh, I was like, oh, I wonder if, you know, I wonder when Adam's going to release a compatible version or if, or if the, you know, mailables, uh, the mailable classes was going to mess anything up and how much work that was going to be for you. And then I messaged you and you're like, oh, yeah, Titan's kind of taking care of that. So I was yeah. glad when they released it, though, I was, you know, I was doing some testing in uh, a new 5.3 app and MailThief wasn't working. So I was like, ah, come on. So just, I just pushed, yeah, I just pushed those tests to the back until the new version was released. But yeah, I haven't really looked at it. Um, I think it, it does still support non five three versions, right? Mm-hmm. But just that's like the hardest thing ever when you're writing like a Laravel specific package, just to have it support both or multiple versions of Laravel because Laravel kind of has its own kind of semantic versioning thing going on, right? So you might write a pack like I don't know. It's it's difficult because. If they have a breaking change, then you need to write a breaking change, which means you need a new major version. But, you know, how, does that major version still work with the previous version of Laravel? What do you do if you need to make a breaking change to 4.0 of your version that works with 5.2 of Laravel's version? Um, do you increase it to 5.0? Well, you can't because your 5.0 is actually compatible with Laravel's 5.3. You know, it's yeah. just really tricky to <laughs> come up with a good strategy for um kind of framework specific packages that have to stay in sync with framework versions while also maintaining the flexibility to do your own versioning. So, uh, yeah, it looks like they managed to pull it off though. So that's cool. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the, I mean, the problem that I found that I was dealing with when trying to use it on five is that the contracts kind of changed, uh, between level five, two and five, three. So it was complaining about some of the, you know, default values that were set in the parameters, not being the same as the contract. Yeah. And so th- those are just littler things. I know that there were some other things that were a little bit more difficult to migrate over to 5.3 that I wasn't necessarily using. So I went in there to kind of like make a pull request and it was like, holy crap, there's already like three pages of discussion on this. It must be a little more complex than what I was thinking yeah. originally. So I just kind yeah, of... It's, let, tr- it's tricky that, because yeah. you need to keep the same... Def- how do you have default parameters correct for 5.2 and for 5.3 in the same version of Mail Thief, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I, um, I don't know if they... I don't know how they tagged it. Um, but yeah, it is tricky. All that versioning yeah. stuff is a mess. Yeah. So um, I also saw that you were just tweeting today about Valet for Sierra. Um, what's the roadmap look like for that? Yeah. So um, let's see. So the main kind of uh, impetus, I guess, behind kind of looking at Valet again lately is, uh, first of all, Sierra is coming out. So we'd like to to be able to support Sierra. And the reason that we couldn't support Sierra before is because we ship with Caddy 0.8.3. And um, Caddy has a 0.9.x, you know, 0.9.1, I think, is the most recent version. Um, the .8 version didn't support Sierra properly. I'd have a lot of people reporting that, like, hey, Valid just crashes after a few minutes of serving, you know, websites and stuff. Thankfully, that wasn't our fault. It was Caddy's fault because that would have been a scary bug to try and <laughs> right. fix. But the 0.9 version fixes that on Sierra. But the problem is um, we merged in some new functionality in Valet that better supports serving static files. So uh, we'd have some issues in the past where people were working on sites where they were like serving video files, uh, anything that needed to be like streamed or was like really big. And the way that Valet works internally is everything is proxied via PHP to whatever driver it detects for that specific project. And that driver um, 
serves as static files, right? So normally with like a, a server like Nginx or Caddy, you would have the request come in and you would be able to tell, you know, is this a PHP file or is it a static file before even hitting PHP? So you can see, oh, it's a video. So I can just get Caddy to serve the video directly and bypass the whole PHP section. Uh, because Valet does project detection, when a request comes in, that is maybe like slash videos slash my video.mp4 or whatever. Caddy has no way of like knowing what that path actually translates to on the file system. It has to go to the driver and say, hey, tell me what type of project this is and is this a static file? So the Laravel one might say, um, you know, if it comes in as videos slash my video.mp4, it's going to say, okay, well, I know that Laravel's static files are stored in public slash whatever, so it's actually going to look for public slash videos slash myvideo.mp4. And then um, we would just read that file in PHP and send that response back to, to Caddy. So even for a static file, you'd have to hit PHP. Um, I was trying to figure out a way to solve that because with large files and stuff that needed to be streamed it just wouldn't work properly in a lot of cases and i didn't want to like figure out how to re-implement like chunked responses and all this stuff in php it seemed crazy when like you have a web server that's great at it sitting right there so after a bunch of research i figured out caddy supports this um this internal directive and this proxy directive which it's similar to this feature in nginx but basically it lets you send back this header that contains a path to a file and the server so it goes through Caddy to PHP. PHP sends back an HTTP response that contains this header. Caddy inspects the header and notices, oh, well, if this header is present, PHP is telling me that I can just serve the file that's mentioned in the content of the header myself. So what we want to do is just send back a path and then Caddy can say, oh, I noticed that PHP just wants me to take care of serving this file and it's given me the full path to serve it. Um, which let us delete a whole ton of code and you know serve large files properly. And if you go and try and serve a video with Valet now, you'll see that it makes like however many requests is necessary, intelligently chunking it into smaller amounts and it'll stream it and all sorts of cool stuff that wouldn't work before. But Caddy 0.9, that uh, proxying uh, redirect kind of header feature doesn't work properly uh, because Caddy was like a whole rewrite. And I guess um, they ported over a bunch of those plugins, but I guess there's a bug. Uh, so we can't update Valet to the latest version of Caddy until that bug in Caddy is fixed, which means that Valet can't support Sierra until that bug in Caddy is fixed. Unless we were to revert the static file stuff that we added and tag a release that used the new version of Caddy but didn't support any of the better static file handling stuff. So basically we have to trade, you know, one bug for another bug. Yeah. So it's... So I'm trying to find someone who, because um, I know Matt Holt, who's uh, kind of the creator of Caddy and the lead maintainer of Caddy, you know, doesn't have all the time in the world to work on that stuff. So he's always looking for people to help out with things like that. So I'm trying to see if I can find a Go developer who uses uh, Valet for their PHP stuff that might be able to help out because it's a, uh, I could try and learn it, but I've never worked with Go before. Yeah. So I don't really feel confident trying to fix it myself, but it'd be cool if we could, uh, help them out and get that fixed so we could get out a, a new version of Valet that'll support the latest Mac OS version. Yeah. Dude, did you guys have like a, a donation page or anything where we can send you guys cash for like setting up Valet? My gosh. I mean, like just hearing you talk about the amount of work that you guys have had to do in the research and the probably the late nights you've had to spend trying to figure out some of this stuff, um, you know, and then just to release it for free to the community is really generous of you guys. Uh, it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, the whole Valet backstory is kind of hilarious because me and Taylor were just kind of talking about, uh, 
you know, he was using Homestead for everything. And I said, you know, I don't even use Homestead. I just use like Artisan Serve for everything. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> Guilty. And uh, he tried it and he was like, man, like this is actually so fast and like pretty easy. Like a lot of people think like getting MySQL and stuff set up on your local machine is a pain. And it used to be a pain, but Homebrew makes it pretty good now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mentioned to Taylor, like, you know, the only thing that sucks about Artisan Serve is I can't serve multiple sites at the same time unless I specify different ports and have to remember all these ports. And he's like, huh, that does kind of suck. And then like 12 hours later, we had like an initial version of Valet. Yeah, <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> we just, yeah, we just kind of hit this like, I don't know, we were just kind of in the zone. Uh, it only took us a couple of days to get the whole thing like out and released. So, and with a trailer or, or a teaser video yeah, or whatever too, yeah, exactly. <laughs> which was made at like 10 PM the night before it was being released as a joke. And Taylor was like, dude, you actually have to release this. Yeah. It's like a Laravel <laughs> so, meme now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like people, what do they say? Uh, Oh, what a rush, right? People say that all yeah, the time. Yeah. It's too stupid. It's pretty funny. Yeah, so, I mean, we haven't had to do a lot of real crazy active development on it. Um, you know, fixing a couple things, adding a couple features here and there. Uh, but this kind of getting it ready for Sierra is kind of the only real, you know, critical thing that we need to get sorted out. So, and then also, who knows what homebrew is going to be like on Sierra. Yeah, um, right. You can't, re- so <laughs> we'll wait for kind of things to come out and settle there before we really know uh, what we're in. Yeah, I ran into some dependency issues last night with Valet, actually. And I think for some reason, when you try and install PHP using Homebrew, it also installs Apache, but the dependencies between Apache and PHP are wrong or something. So I don't even have Valet running on Sierra at the moment. Great. I saw some people were using this other, like, pre-kind of built version of PHP. PHP, like, uh, I don't know, some site that uh, it's like an agency and, like, a eastern europe i think um kind of put this thing together oh i know exactly what you're talking about and um it's like the guy who PHP made laravel shift. or something yeah the guy who made laravel shift what's his name jason jason jason, jason McCreary. yeah he he referenced that on twitter the other day too and um yeah. i said something about homebrew to him and he was like yeah no not ever using homebrew ever period i don't ever. know what version of um php sierra ships with either uh ooh. Good question. I think it was still 5.6. Yeah. So you don't even need to have Homebrew PHP installed for Valet to work. It tries to install PHP 7 during the installation process for you anyways. Um, but it will actually work with anything from 5.4 and up uh, as long as that's installed. It doesn't really care. Cool. Well, if you don't mind, I'm just going to kind of switch a little bit to testing. Um, and one of the things that you... Um, or I guess it was your entire conference talk, really, at Laracon this year. Uh, you did some outside-in testing, right? And you kind of set stuff up and, you know, they run the tests and it fails and then you fix the problem and whatever. And uh, with the idea of essentially not writing any code that you don't have coverage for, right? Letting the tests kind of guide your um, guide your development. And you talked about um, uh, programming by wishful thinking, I think you called it, right? So, like, what's the API I want it to, I want it to have? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that and then I'm going to make it work. Uh, which I thought was really cool. So I've been trying to do that with a new application that I've been working on a lot. So I have like a participant that belongs to a user. So you can, a user can have multiple participants. And then each participant can have an application or they can have multiple applications. Um, and that application is for a trip and each trip has different like rooming options. So that's kind of like the tree of, of kind of how it works. So in order to test like that a participant can apply to a trip. I have to set up 
like a user and then user add participant and then participant tries to apply but the application has to have a trip and a room so you know i just end up setting up the entire world when yeah. i'm trying to do this i mean am i am i doing that wrong uh should i be isolating things a little bit more um it kind of depends so it's a couple of different strategies. The first one that I would recommend, which is kind of the simplest one, is if you find yourself like having these, you know, 15 lines of factory set up at the beginning of your test, which it kind of sounds like is what you're describing. Yeah. A lot of time what I'll do is I'll create like helper methods in my base test case or in some sort of trait that I mix into test cases where I need them that kind of let me be more descriptive about uh, what it is that I'm creating and kind of encapsulate what the dependencies of that are underneath of it mm-hmm. um, especially for things where the details of those related models don't actually matter to what i'm testing but they need to exist for the application to run so you might have like it sounds like you need a participant to be able to apply to a trip Is correct that, yep so you might create a participant with a helper method like this create participant that takes a, you know, a couple of parameters that are actually relevant to the test and kind of does everything necessary behind the scenes, like create the user, put those parameters in the right place. And then you might have a helper for like creating an application that again, maybe just takes a couple of parameters that are important to that, or sorry, create a trip um, with parameters that are important to that. Um, and sometimes that can just be like, um, say uh, an example would be, say you're working on like uh, some sort of music library app or something and you need to have an album that has songs in the system and part of the test is going to assert against like the song names i might have a helper in the test that's like this create album that takes an array of song titles Mm -hmm. and that's it yeah um so i can just say like create an album with these three song titles and it'll create three song objects with random lengths and set the titles from the array on those and then create the album with a random name because maybe the name doesn't matter or whatever in this case um and just kind of create all that stuff for me but the goal is just to kind of remove anything from the test setup that is just noise that's not really relevant to the things that you're asserting against even if it just means creating helpers that only get used in that test um does that sound like yeah that 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 yeah that was uh I was interested to kind of hear like if you're extracting those to traits or if you're just putting those as private methods that aren't tested inside your test class or both. Yeah, or- it it, de- it depends. Sometimes you might be creating stuff that's like useful to be able to share across multiple different tests. Other times you might just be creating something that only gets used once. I usually create it as like a private method in the test until I need the exact same method again or I need a method very similar and it's like, oh, maybe I can like parameterize this one part of it so that I can like reuse this in both places and then maybe I'll extract it either up to like the base test case or to a um to a trait and that can help like reduce the the noise i mean the goal is basically the same goal that you have with using factories in the first place so like the reason that you use factories in a test versus just doing like user colon colon create directly is because you only want to specify the information in the test that's actually relevant to the assertions right yeah so if i'm testing uh, a full name method on the user that's just supposed to concatenate their first name and last name but the user has 10 required columns. I don't want to have to go user create first name, Adam, last name, well, then date of birth, this role, this, um, you know, whatever, because right. none of that stuff matters to the test. So you use a factory just to be able to say first name, last name, use default values or random values from the factory for, for the other stuff. Uh, so this is kind of the same idea in terms of kind of taking that up like one more level 
of uh, abstraction. And sometimes you have, you know, a model that needs three other models to exist for it to exist. And just giving you the, op- uh, exposing an API that lets you just create that and not worry about the, the details, um, except for the one or two details that are actually relevant. Um, so that's one way uh, that's often like the right way, especially when you're doing like a system test where there's not really a good opportunity to use test doubles. Like it seems kind of funky to use like a test double for the rooming, for example, yeah. say if if you're actually doing like a full HTTP endpoint test or something. Um, but if you are at like a unit level and you need like multiple objects to exist down the chain, a lot of the times that can be like um, kind of a sign of like a law of Demeter violation. Have you ever heard of the law of Demeter before? Nope. So the law of Demeter is basically the way that I like to say it is um, you can touch your friends, you can touch your privates, <laughs> but you can't touch your friends' privates. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> so so if you have, oh, hold on. Are we going to finally get the explicit tag on this, on this uh, <laughs> podcast? <laughs> uh, okay, go ahead. Sorry. So, um, let me try and think of a good example. But basically the idea is that say that you have like um, some model in your system that has, you know, a relationship to some other model, which has a relationship to some other model. So say model A, you know, has many model B, which has many model C or whatever. And in model A, for whatever reason, you need to say like this model B, model C, this, you know what I mean? To mm-hmm. get something distant. And that's kind of forcing you to instantiate all of those objects. Um, so that's called a law of Demeter violation because your, your goal is to never have to reach through an object to access something else that it knows about. You should only be asking the object that you have a direct reference to questions or telling it to do things. So say you have like a user who has like an account which like belongs to a company or something. And for some reason in the user class, you need to be able to get the company name and you would normally go like this account company name. Yeah. Um, a, a common strategy for like fixing that law of Demeter violation is to add a company name uh, method to the account object. So instead of saying this account company name, you just say this account company name. There you go. Okay. And now if you need to, if, if, that avoids forcing you to create that company object now because you can use a test double for the account and the account can just have a stubbed company name method instead of having to have a stubbed company property which has a stubbed name method you know what i mean yeah that makes so total it's a, sense it's a way of making your dependencies like shallower by kind of um avoiding having to reach through objects to get to other objects so when you're at a more unit testing level that is another thing to look out for when you're trying to figure out ways to simplify your test setup i really like that that's pretty cool because i've definitely run into that especially in this situation i've you know my temptation has been like okay i know this is a relational database and everything but i'm definitely going to need this property off of this other thing do i just store it on that right on that table you know what i mean so like if i have like a a user that owns a participant and the participant is going to apply right on that application table. I'm definitely going to have the participant ID, but the temptation is like, do I just put the user ID on there as well? Cause I know I'm going to need that half the time, you know, but kind of what you're saying, right. Is that I would have user and then like get participant applications or something like that. And it would allow me to be able to stub that instead of actually having to create the, the participant and then, you know, grab the applications, yeah. just kind of mark it out. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, no, I like that suggestion. Um, 
the other question I kind of had is, you know, when you're doing these sorts of tests, these outside-in tests, Laravel has these acceptance tests methods, which are super helpful. So you can say like acting as, visit this route, and then fill in these fields, and then press the submit button. Do you tend to do that when, you know, when you're doing your outside-in tests, or, you know, are you more often just kind of hitting the route with the HTTP verb that you're testing? So, you know, this post and then send through what the route is that you're getting and then the the data that you're sending through. I actually do use the direct route testing more often than I use the UI testing, um, but it's not really because necessarily I think it's better. It's mostly out of necessity because most of the forms that I'm submitting, especially ones that are non-trivial, I'm usually submitting with Ajax in some way. And so it's kind of funny, like my main motivation for like using Vue, for example, on a lot of things is not because like I necessarily want to have some rich client side interaction. It's just because the limitations of like a form data style post request make it really ugly to deal with the data on the back end. Whereas if I submit it as an Ajax request, I can send like nicely structured JSON that like the server understands and it's formatted in like an intelligent way instead of all this crazy nested array stuff, right? That you normally have to try and do. Um, so most of the time, if I'm doing like a form submission, um, I, I end up leaning on that a lot because of the fact that I'm trying to do an Ajax request anyways, mm-hmm. or just because sometimes it, um, I mean, sometimes I'll do a combination of multiple, right? So sometimes I might have one test that submits it through the form for like the happy path, say. But then like for the tests that are checking that validation rules are in place, for example, I might just hit that form endpoint directly um, with uh, the data that I know is invalid and then check for errors in the session. Because a lot of time it's easier to assert against like errors that have been set in the session than it is to assert against, um, you know, error strings showing up in the view after the whole redirect flow happens and stuff like that. Um, so I think it's just kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's down to like, what's going to give you enough confidence. Like the more UI you can skip, like the faster your tests are going to end up being right. and also like the more kind of explicit you can be about like what you're sending and what you're getting back versus like trying to interact with the page. Um, so I, I, I reach for that quite often because most of the time I'm not that uncomfortable with the idea of the actual UI not getting executed in the test in the sense that like to me having a form field get deleted by accident feels like very low risk. Yeah, yeah. It feels like the odds of that happening are like extremely low. Like, um, So it is still helpful to be able to like have a test or two that goes through the UI uh, in that way when necessary but even then like it's just a kind of a cost benefit analysis right so if i think like well the odds of me accidentally messing up the template in a way that's like going to stop this form from even submitting especially messing it up like completely by accident with it like if i'm editing a template i'm in the browser refreshing and checking out my changes you know what i mean like so i feel like the odds of me like totally ruining the form and not seeing that as I'm working on the form are so low that I I don't really worry about it that much. Yeah. But it's just a a kind of a judgment call. I might be more inclined to do more of like the full UI testing. If we had like some really good tooling around that, that wasn't like Selenium. Um, But until then, like I'm happy to make the trade off 
and kind of just accept that, okay, this part isn't necessarily fully covered in the sense that I'm not simulating what the user is doing, but I am simulating or testing exactly what the server should be doing in response to the request, as long as you send the right request. So, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about that is like, say you were building like a, a mobile application, right? Like an iOS application, and you were testing a form on the mobile application. You probably like wouldn't feel guilty about testing the API that it talks to by just sending an HTTP request and testing the mobile application by stubbing out the server. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. Yep. You, it probably wouldn't occur to you really that like, oh man, we really have like this black hole in our coverage where we're not testing that the mobile app is actually sending to the server correctly. Right. Um, and when you start thinking about things in that way and start thinking of like your JavaScript components as just being another, you know, client of your API then it doesn't feel like as, I guess it doesn't induce as much guilt to, to think about just testing the endpoint directly. Yeah, I know anyways. one of the things I've kind of run into as well is that, you know, especially if you're starting out doing kind of outside in and you're doing it full level UI acceptance, it, it makes it really fragile. A lot of your tests are super fragile because you're still in kind of the discovery phase, right? So yeah. uh, if I change the name of one of these input fields, all of a sudden, you know, my acceptance test is broken because the field that I was filling in originally has changed names now. And so now I have to change that like in three places yeah. instead of two places, right? So, um, yeah, I, that's kind of what I started leaning towards as well is kind of just testing the at the endpoints rather than testing the UI. Another kind of interesting talking point around that that I'm kind of exploring a bit now is um, uh, kind of the idea of, have you guys ever worked with Cucumber or Bahat before? I haven't, no. Very briefly. Yeah, so the idea is to kind of create this like additional layer where you're kind of specifying your examples in this like human readable language, which, you know, is purported to have a bunch of benefits just in terms of communication. But like, that's not the part that is actually interesting to me right now. The part that's interesting to me is like the right way to write like a cucumber test. You'll see like a lot of, if you look back like three or four years when cucumber was a lot more popular in the Rails community, you'd see people write cucumber tests like when I visit slash account and fill in my name in this field and enter this password in this field and enter my password confirmation in this field and then press the submit button, then I should see whatever, right? Um, and you'll you'll hear from like experienced Cucumber experts that that's not the right way to use it, that you should be operating at like another level of abstraction, which is instead of saying, when I visit this page and fill in this form field and fill in this form field and press this button, it should say like, when I change my password, then this yeah and and when you write a test that way you have to write like what's called a step definition for that right so you have to describe in code well what is the translation of change my password into code that the test can execute and what i'm finding really interesting is the idea of having this opportunity to translate that means like in the case we're talking about with like um you know we can use the change my password example i guess um if you have a test that's like, when I change my password, then when I log in with my new password, I should be authenticated or whatever, right? You can have the original step definition for change my password to be visit the account settings page, type this in this form field, type this in this form field, and click this button. But then if you decide that, okay, well, actually now we're going to update that to be an Ajax form, and we don't really care about testing the UI anymore, and I just want to test the endpoint directly, all you have to do is change the step definition. So instead of saying, you know, changing my password means visiting this page and filling in these forms, now I'm just saying that changing my password just means submitting a post request to this endpoint. But the 
actual test doesn't change at all. Just your translation steps for the test change. That's really cool. Um, so I'm, I'm experimenting with that a little bit and I'm also trying to experiment with it without having to introduce like a whole new layer of tooling. So you can do it in PHP unit even by just like creating methods for things like that. So in my test, instead of saying like this acting as this visit, this fill in, fill in, click, I can just write a helper method called this change password and then put in the new password and then make that a private method. And that yep. can be your step definition. You know what I mean? Right. So then like the actual like behavior that you're trying to describe never has to change. It's just like what those individual steps mean can be changed independently of the actual definition of the test. So it's kind of a cool way to introduce like another layer where you have like a little bit more flexibility where you don't have to throw away the whole test because you've decided that now I want to test it this way instead of this way. Um, so it's kind of an interesting idea that I'm playing with a little bit more now. No, I love that. Thanks for sharing that with us, Adam. You know, I, I'm hearing a lot of awesome ideas, which makes me even more excited for your uh, your test course that's going to be coming out. Um, we're about out of time here, but do you want to give a plug just for your testing course and kind of what that's going to entail and when that's <laughs> going to be coming out? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm working on a, it's like a screencast series uh, called Test Driven Laravel, uh, which you can find at testdrivenlaravel.com, all one word. Uh, so the idea is basically to walk through building like a whole example application from scratch, screencasting the whole thing, all with TDD. And um, I'm trying to make it like, I'm trying to like intentionally make it hard because I know most of the tutorials and examples out there kind of take the easy route and, you know, test things like calculators that are really easy to test in isolation and have no dependencies and stuff like that. So I'm trying to show you how you would build like the same sort of application that you might build like at work and how to use TDD to do it. So testing hard stuff, like, you know, one of the things that it's going to do is generate QR codes so that the example app is like a, it's called ticket beast. And the idea is to build, um, basically a platform for like local promoters to like put concerts online and sell tickets to them. Right. So someone can go to like a concert page and, you know, buy a ticket, which is going to like going to go through Stripe and charge a credit card. And we have to test that somehow and generate a ticket for them that has a QR code in it that contains like uh, their confirmation code or whatever. So security can scan it at the door of the concert and it sends them a PDF that has the QR code embedded in it. Um, and then even working towards like, having it so when someone buys a ticket, it uses like the Stripe Connect platform to like funnel that money directly to the promoter whose account is like connected to the system. And just trying to do a lot of stuff that's gonna use a lot of external stuff and really real world, not isolated, kind of like intentionally simplified stuff. Uh, so I'm making it hard on myself in that way, but I'm also hoping that it's gonna turn out to be like, kind of, uh, you know, the definitive resource out there for like, here's how someone who's got a bit of experience with this stuff would build like a real thing, trying to follow these kind of test driven principles. And, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to uh, finishing it up. I've been, you know, working on it kind of full time since I got back from uh, Laracon EU a couple weeks ago. My goal is to kind of have it out first couple weeks of October, uh, but we'll see. So right now I'm, I'm working on building out the whole app. Um, and then I'm going to throw it up on a demo site so people can kind of go and poke around and kind of get excited to seeing like what they're going to build. And it'll be connected to a Stripe test account so people can put in the fake Stripe cards and get tickets emailed to them and sign up as a promoter and create their own shows and, and stuff like that. So hopefully that'll be cool. And yeah, hopefully that'll be able to, you know, earlier mid-October. And uh, yeah. Awesome, man. That's a pretty quick turnaround, actually. I, I thought it was going to be a little bit later than that, but um that's great. So when that comes out, we'll definitely try and get a uh, coupon code for all our listeners for yeah for, uh, sure. for uh, getting that course. And um, 
Yeah, man, it's been super cool having you on today and always enjoy talking to you. So thanks for taking some time out for us, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been fun. Thanks so much. Yeah, and just uh, for Michael here, I'll just poor Michael. He's waking up. What time is it there, Michael? At uh, 6.30 now. Okay, it's 6.30 now. When you woke up, it was like 4.45 or something. Michael told me as soon as we got on the show today, he said, I feel like I've been hit by a bus. <laughs> so I wasn't trying to edge out Michael on purpose <laughs> today. Uh, just but, covering uh, for Michael, me. Yeah, he said, I'm probably going to let you do most of the talking today. So uh, we didn't get to hear as much of the Aussie accent as we usually like to. But uh, anyway, next week. Yeah, next I'll week. make up so, for it, I promise. Yeah, so uh, if you guys like the episode, feel free to rate us on iTunes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at North South Audio. And the show notes for this episode will be at northmeetsouth.audio slash 10. Hey, guys, it was awesome talking to you all. And uh, Adam, we'll have to have you, uh, have to have you on again after your, after your course is out. Cool. Thanks, all guys. Right, Thanks. Thanks a lot. Before we kind of get into that, uh, would you... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna start that over there. We're gonna do we're gonna do this is what this is what I did when I was when I was skating back in the day. We'd always do this in front of the camera. That always meant retake. <laughs> uh, so there we go, Michael. That's not gonna help you at all because you're not gonna be able to say, see the hand wave in the audio. Uh, but there you go.